0: Teagan. And I'm Eric. This is the Professional Weaver Podcast, where each week we have discussions with weavers and the supply chain that supports us with hopes to build depth, transparency, and connection within the hand weaving
1: community. This week's episode was sponsored by Comfort Cloth Weaving, a company specializing in heirloom quality handwoven products for the home, as well as yardage for the fashion and accessories industries, and value-added products for farmers and wool growers. Find out more at ComfortClothWeaving.com.
0: We would like to thank Susan, Cecilia and Richard, as well as Caitlin for being patrons of the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, go to ProWeaverPod.com slash support to make a one-time or monthly support contribution.
1: If you're interested in more weaving related content,
0: and what we were up to last weekend
1: check out our weavers guild show and sale website at hmwg.org forward slash show where you can find a link to our youtube channel where all the content is being uploaded from our live event there's a bunch of content already up and more to come
0: this week we are talking with angie parker of angie parker textiles in bristol england In 2014, she established her business by creating distinctive and intricate rugs and textile art. Her specialty is in using traditional weaving techniques, such as croque and giving them a fresh outlook in modern colors and proportion. Her distinctive style was developed while she pursued a career in costume design. While working, she would continue to weave on small scale collections. Through these collections, she was able to combine her instinctive weaving and daring approach to color with time honor techniques, bridging the gap between traditional and contemporary. After time spent in India, and more recently, the color graffiti and houses in her Bristol neighborhood have influenced her color palette in a way that connects with the viewer in a joyful and exciting way. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Angie as we talk about what it takes to start a business, pricing her work, the arts education in the United Kingdom, brogged, and the joys of color.
1: We began talking to Angie about how she found her way to weaving.
2: So I trained in rug weaving at art college in the early 1990s. Um, Growing up in in Manchester in the UK, um, my mum was a keen knitter and sewer. So there were, like most textiles people I know, there was that familiarity of, of working with textiles. And it was picked up by my art teacher in secondary school who just made a flippant comment one day and said, oh, and you've got a real flair with textiles. And it, it was it was a quite an academic school. And, um, you know, some of my peers went on to be NASA scientists. So I wasn't didn't really want to go that academic. I was much more happy in the art room. So it was nice to get that recognition. Um, and I did an art foundation. Then I went off to Cumbria College of Art where I specialised in a in, uh, rug weaving course wow. um, and so I was fortunate to be tutored by the late um, master weaver Susan Foster and she is was part of the Peter Collingwood. he was one of her peers oh wow yeah I know And she, oh my word she was amazing I had um, some she she was you know she was only in one day a week but the tuition I got from her gave me that foundation there was no compromising you know you do the job properly and mm-hmm. um, and so that's where i learned but that's obviously a while ago do you want to hear then the next bit yeah <laughs> please <laughs> i um so i did yeah so i specialized in rug weaving and then when i graduated i showed new designers with the college in london which was a brilliant platform for emerging makers for artists um and I won the Floor Covering Award at New Designers. So Whoa. it was a fabulous end to my education and start the next part. But I was i was in my early 20s, didn't, hadn't got much life experience, incredibly naive, and, and didn't really have the skills that you need to run your own business. So I did intend to start a business. I've got a couple of commissions from New Designers. Um, And I took a part time job to support my business and the art teacher who, it's funny how some some people are so significant, she told me to make sure you have always have a job I enjoy. I was a cheerful child and I think she didn't want to see that knocked out of me.
1: Mm.
2: And so I I loved theatre. So I took a job at Manchester Palace Theatre near to where I was living. And that was supposed to be part-time so that I could work on my weaving. And then I ended up, uh, all the West End shows used to tour there, and I ended up working in costume and then going off on tours and had a 15, 20-ish year career in musical theatre doing costumes. Oh! And the whole time I was focused that I would have my business one day and I kept weaving and I wasn't weaving to sell the work, I was just weaving for the sheer joy of it so um, that's
0: how i developed my style oh i love that's it that's awesome do you yeah. find that your years of doing costume design and working in theater like does that influence the colors that you use now does that influence the textures that you create
2: not not necessarily the shows although i did work on joseph and his technical dream coat <laughs> i still know all the words for the the show for that, um, I I think you do. I think you absorb, and it, it was. I worked on Miss Saigon, and the beading in that show was so elaborate. So you again, you've got that whole texture. And um, but I think it was more the life skills that I picked up from touring and being on the road, and the friendships. Um, they they fed in as much as as the you know the create the creativity side of it. Mm. But it gave it did let me percolate a business idea for a very long time, so that when I finally did sell the business, I, I, there was a lot of things that felt in order.
1: Yeah. What was it that uh, tipped you over the edge from wanting to start a business to actually being like, okay, now's the time, and it's I'm going to do this and start this business and make it happen? <laughs>
2: It was my life circumstances um, because there had been a couple of false starts, but um, the the bizarre thing is, it was the arrival of my third child. Because I'd, in between the first two, I'd I'd gone back to work and then I had three kids in three years. I'm quite a time management person, and Mother Nature played along with me on that, fortunately. So it was this very efficient production of children. and with so with them being so young there was no it, it was I, I couldn't afford to go back to my job i would have been paying more than i was earning mm. and I, and also i wanted to actually be a stay-at-home mom for a few years three made it make sense to do that and then i just so we'd gone to living on my husband's wages and you know tightened our belts living within our means and we were managing and I said to my husband, right, this is my chance. While we're, while we're living like this, give me a couple of years to get the business off the ground. Um, so those early days in business, um, <laughs> it was it didn't feel like I was in business. I'd literally, the children would be watching a television program and I'd nip off and make a walk. And then when I put them to bed, I'd, I'd set up the loom. And it mm-hmm. would, you know, it would take me... Ages to make anything, but that was just getting into the habit. And then the children started school, um, and when the third one started school, suddenly there were these six hours, which isn't a very long working day, but for me it was ah, it was amazing, and um, then I could really get stuck in. I do kick myself a little bit for not actually just having a couple of weeks off (laughs) because I've just gone (laughs) from the craziness of running around after three kids to um, the equally crazy running my own business
1: yes yeah we know that feeling that was kind got, of what's that have you got kids or no your
2: business? no you're busy with work yeah yeah <laughs>
1: that's because uh, we sort of uh similar circumstances without kids though um tegan had the opportunity she had uh her st- uh, cl- store that she was managing closed and it was what do we do we go look for a new job or do we start the business and I was working full-time still, so we were able to use that money to sort of put towards starting the business while she got going. And uh, I worked for about a year and a half, Yep. right, while you got going. And then when we got to a point where we felt like uh, we could at least survive on just the weaving business, I jumped and joined as well. Fantastic. Yeah.
2: yeah. I think it's, it's a topic that isn't talked about enough. You do have to... Uh, be in a certain situation to set up a business. I mean, when I was in my early twenties, the first time round, I didn't have the confidence to ask for investment. And this time round, I didn't want the pressure of having an investor because mm. I still was, you know, the children were the, for a few years. I was the primary carer, even when they're at school. So if I'd brought in investment and I had to have, be really reaching the targets, you know, for somebody else as well that was going to put a pressure that would have taken um, any enjoyment out in the business. Yeah. So it's taken me longer and it's, you know, it's been frustrating at how slow it has taken, to, how slowly it has grown, but it's meant that I'm in control of, of that as well. And I can take a day off for sports day. Not that I do that often actually, but
0: <laughs> in theory I should. Yes. <laughs> we also feel that pain. We kind of, for two at least leading up to the pandemic hitting the United States, we were working every day. We weren't taking days off. We were just chugging along, mm. creating product for shows and traveling and trying to really get this off the ground. And then when everything stopped, it's like, oh, we can take a day
1: off. What do we do? Yeah.
0: We can actually like enjoy what we're doing instead of rushing through it. So I definitely feel you on that. It's so important. I think if you're in this for the long haul, you've got to make sure
2: you, you, I I say stay in love. It sounds so extreme, Mm -hmm. but this, I, you know, even now after this year, which has been really challenging, I still really love my business.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, And I think if without that, there's no point doing it. It's, you know, Mm -hmm. by the way, I loved the questions you sent
0: through. So I think there are. Thanks. (laughs) I was actually just going to ask, what was the moment where you just started up your business again? You're really getting going. What was the moment that you really felt like, "Yes, I'm actually doing it. I'm making it happen."
2: Oh, that's a really good question. And every every month, every week, there's a, a an answer to that question because we have our, you have your targets and you have your milestones. So, the you know, if you think about it, the first show i did with the new version of the business i i only i managed to reupholster two chairs and sold them at a local arts trail and which sh- i would shown in a friend's house this whole weekend and a couple bought the chairs and then they left with the chairs and the, the whole of this this town must have heard me oh, so there was that amazing target i'd made something that i liked and someone liked it enough to buy it and that was right at the start and then you move on to the next target so I think then I was lucky enough to do a business training program with the UK Crafts Council called Hot Hams. and that it was the timing was perfect I'd um I'd been oh, carrying on up cycling the chairs and making the upholstery fabric and selling these as one-off pieces and I'd earned enough then to reinvest in some decent photography and that's what got me onto Hothouse. So even that day, the day I got onto Hothouse, House, was like, yes, now I'm going to get some real business training. And okay. of course, over the six months, they crammed in you know, a couple of years worth of training into six months. It was really intense. And it just took the whole business apart. And then at the end of the six months, you're like, oh my God, every- I've got to change everything. Mm-hmm. I was so single-minded when I started. My business was actually called Diva Weaver. And I was re- upcycling chairs. And I said, Well, I'm here to learn and I'm here to take on ideas, but I'm not changing the name and I'm not stopping doing chairs. And six months later I'm Angie Parker Textiles and I'm a rug weaver. <laughs> I'd gone back to what I initially trained in. You know, people were saying to me, Why aren't you making rugs? And I was I, you know, there was lots of reasons I had a loom in the corner of the playroom at home. It's like, get a studio. Oh yeah, you know, and so I got the studio. So um and then the milestones you, you just set a bigger target. So I think um, selling work through a contemporary craft gallery, then that was, the, you know, that phone call you get that somebody's spent thousands on your work. Suddenly it's like, wow, through a gallery as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and lovely Margot Selby, who'd mentored me on Hot House, oh. she then put a blog post on her website called Six of the Best she told me she was going to do this and she included me in her six of the best weavers. I mean, you probably heard me that day as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it was just lovely things that are happening. Um, and then I did an exhibition. Sorry, it sounds like my CV now, but I did an exhibition of um, rug weavers that were shown at Ruffin, um Craft Centre up in North Wales. And there was Christopher Barr, who'd been such a hero of mine from before. I was even a rug weaver um, and he had a piece designed by Gunther Stortz from the Bauhaus and wow. Ptolemy Mann, Margot, um, Helen Yardley, all, the, all my design heroes were in this exhibition and I was in this exhibition so that's that and then you know now I've got bigger ambitions again so you mm. enjoy the moment, you reward yourself and then within minutes you're on to what's next you know or mm. the next thing started bubbling away. It's, it's really important to reflect i mean that's why it's lovely to chat to you guys because I, I just have to think I had a little thing today i was like oh and you know you go through your instagram every now and again and look at what you've done in the past few years and it's like yes
1: yeah yeah i think that is uh and a really um fun way to sort of remember the joy of what you're doing too because like we'll have. You know, when we started doing shows, there were shows that we just thought we would never, ever even get into, like that we weren't good enough to get into. And mm-hmm. like, here we are now um, being like knowing vendors at those shows and being, uh you know, regulars at those shows and seeing people from those shows elsewhere and being like, oh, hey, I know you from that show. I never thought I'd get into. And it's always that constant reminder that like. You know you are like at least decent at what you do and like people like it and you're still here and you're advancing and you're doing cooler newer things and progressing yeah yeah
2: yeah you're part, you're part of the part of the team you yeah. know it's, it's the one big family i am um, actually one of the tips i learned i've got a a4 board that i keep behind the wardrobe i'm just Pin on those milestones. You should do it too. You know, and the things that once were out of your reach and just a dream suddenly are the norm. But then, because it, um, it, everything's transient. I'm, having, I'm really enjoying right now, weirdly, which is not what I expected to be saying in March and April this year, but this year's, you know, it's going okay. But I know that, you know, we don't know what next year's got in store. I know there'll be tough times again and there'll be times when I'm tearing my hair out and I've got more work or or not enough work you know Mm. and and it's really important to have a place you can go to when you're having a little moment of it's not great anymore to just remind yourself how far you've come and and you know take yourself back to a happy place to get through the not so great places that is a that is a
0: really good idea it is we periodically will just be standing in the kitchen cooking or having a cup of tea or something and eric will go you know we are really lucky And we just stand there and talk about like all the good things that are happening at that moment. Like Mm. we have potential clients that are coming into fruition. We have this opportunity to work at a spinning mill and really learn the ins and outs of fiber. And we live in this house that we can also have a studio in. It's like we've really kind of hit the jackpot
1: like setting us up for like success. Like, you know, it's not a mistake that this is happening. We've like worked our asses off to make this happen too. You know, you set those goals, you work towards it. You're focused on the goals and you make it happen. And then you make the next thing happen. And then the next thing happen, And pretty soon you're someplace where you can't believe you're there because it seems like it would never happen when you started, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you can be, optimistic and positive or you could be down on everything and you know which one's the best choice but and then if there are bad times you just have to be honest and look at what's not working and if there isn't enough money coming in from that you look at another bringing in another income stream you know Mm -hmm. you're in look at i think on the whole we're in control obviously there's some things in life we can't control but you focus on the ones you can and, and change where you can and
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's part of um, what uh, precipitated this podcast and like all the things we're doing around it is because I mean, it's not really there's not an income stream there yet, but maybe someday is the hope. Um, Mm -hmm. But when we lost all our shows and we didn't, you know, we weren't making as many sales because we couldn't get out there and meet the people and like see them where they are you know it's harder to get people to come to you or get online um we sort of thought what are we going to do with this time if we're not able to like weave because there's only so much storage we have in the house we can't make you know five thousand blankets um
0: i mean we have 20 right now yeah i know but it's, like, it's
1: hard to like keep keep like making and making and storing um mm-hmm. But so we thought, oh, well, maybe we'll just work on bringing the community close together and we can like build friendships and relationships so that when things start picking back up, we can all be there for each other and help each other out in different ways, uh, in ways that we may not be able to even imagine at this point, because who knows what it's going to look like. And um, hopefully someday this will not only be uh, financially beneficial for us to some degree, but it will also be financially beneficial to all the people that have, we've had on the podcast, and people yeah. will find other weavers, and we can sort of, um, you know, help uh, maybe people who buy from us also buy from you or buy from somebody else, and maybe you know you can bring some of your buyers, and they can find new cool weavers from mm-hmm. you know other places and people that they may not have found before. So I think that um like the idea of diversifying is such a key important idea when you're running your own business because Mm -hmm. if we were just relying on shows like direct customer sales, we would be out of business right now. Mm -hmm. But doing that plus wholesale plus custom commission work plus this plus working at the mill, we can sort of like hodgepodge it all together until You know, one, something will go down and another thing will come up and then it'll ebb and flow over time.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. And that whole joining up the dots, you know, that's it. We've got this worldwide web that has, uh, again, positive and negative. But if it can bring people from across the continents together, Mm. we've got the same message. It's really
0: nice chatting here like this.
1: Yeah. You,
0: you have so much joy when you talk about textiles and when you talk about your work and you can also see it in your work, the bright colors and the patterns that you make. I'm so, I want to hear more about what inspires those creations and what, how you bring that joy into a concrete item. Mm -hmm.
2: Oh, thank you. Lovely thing to say. And
0: yeah,
2: yeah. (laughs) Great answer. (laughs) I am. I think I think actually being restricted on how much weaving I could do for that chunk of time has played a part in that. I'm, I've always loved, I've always been drawn to colour, and um, so when I go on the loom, that's where you know I just have a party. But I would, I always cite the time I lived in India as when my uh, factory settings were reset because um have you ever traveled to India you-
0: no, we have a dear friend who travels to in or used to travel to India mm-hmm. and she would always bring back these beautiful textiles and photographs of like these bright crazy colors it was it was awesome to at least it- experience that with her
2: yeah, and it well we were really lucky to live there um not long after we got married um and just I didn't even realize at the time what was happening but Every, every time I left the flat, I was just bombarded with layers and layers of gorgeously clashing bright colours. I mean, I, I could go and take myself into the sari shops and as a foreigner, I was so welcomed and everyone was expecting <laughs> I was going to spend some money. And it was my duty as a, you know, <laughs> as a foreigner to go and actually buy all this beautiful silk. So I did the needful. But, um, but so we could go into the saris for a real intense hit. But in the streets, there were just the most gorgeous saris and uh, you know everybody was obviously dressed for their own choice that day, but coming together and it just washed over me day in day out. And the, the sunlight as well, it was just taking that then really sharp colour up a notch. And I think where I live in Bristol. Before I left, Bristol's a vibrant, bohemian city. It's got a really good art creative mix. And we came back um, in October and it was so (laughs) grey. It was so utterly grey, my beautiful hometown was like, oh my God, in India with that colour and the sun, it's was like, oh, I hadn't realised how grey it was. But then the neighbourhood I live in is also home to Upfest, which is an international graffiti festival, so each year uh, thousands of, well, hundreds of painters come in from all over Europe and America, I think, definitely Europe, um, and paint this, these enormous sides of buildings and and. This goes on throughout the year, you know there's just spray painters everywhere um, and so there's just this, so it's Bristol is much more contrast to India, it looked a bit grey at first. So, um, and then more recently, because um, we were obviously restricted with what we could do most this year, we were just walking around our neighbourhood more and I've been taking for granted that people paint their houses bright colours in Bristol. Um, it's not unique to Bristol but and lots of obviously, I, I wrote a blog about places around the world, there's bone carp in South um, Africa, um, and um, sancta in Italy. There's all these places where you get this hit of colour, but Bristol's quite different because it's just the residents who are doing it off their own back. There's no there's no direction. They've just all started doing it, so we've got these amazing streets of colour. So that then. Uh, feeds into my work. Sorry
0: a really long answer here. Um, no that's great it really but, gives a real vision of what you're talking about. Well I've just remembered the other half of the question then is and then when I
2: li- worked in the West End I lived in London for three or four years and I had a flat with friends there so I did have a permanent base for quite a while with my loom and I used to go to Hanweaver Studio which is our it was just it was out in Walthamstone as a tube right away but I, I used to just spend most of my wages on yarns. So having the materials, and it's yeah, as a, in a business now, I really have to rein it in. And it's like, no, you've got plenty. You don't need more. <laughs> Do look at the figures, Angela. But um, but having having the resources at at your fingertips really does make a difference when I get on the move.
1: Mm. yeah. I think we have a problem with the yarn. <laughs>
2: Everybody does yeah. <laughs> find, a, find a textile designer who's restrained in their, in their splash. Yeah, no. um,
1: so do you, uh, are you able to find those colors already <laughs> dyed for you or do you have to dye them?
2: Um, I used to dye and I used to do uh, some dip dyeing as well. And then it just made more sense to let specialists do it. And mm-hmm. use um, only so many hours in a day. And then, so I do have a couple of my colours dyed to my specifications, but on the whole, I can get pretty much everything. There's one I've used a lot. that's this really acid yellow. And I had that woven in a place up in Yorkshire. And I, I got two phone calls and said, do you really want that colour? <laughs> it's horrible. And I'm like, no, I really want that colour. And it's just... And the reason I went with that is I was doing Decorex, the trade show, and I only had a small space and i it went for a very obvious i need to be seen so i was like we'll, we'll go neon and I, I got the closest i got the dye uh, as close as i could to this neon and it, it did catch people's eye and then i just love working with it it's a little bit peeps into most of my things now it's just a
1: bit of a statement yeah I really actually am drawn to that color. I know what color you're talking about. Every time I see it on Instagram, I'm like, yes, I like that. I always have to stop and look at it and think about it, and then I can, like, move on. <laughs> but it's such a interesting – I just think the colors you pick are so – it's an interesting choice for a floor. Like, um, I w- it's definitely something that I would choose to put in the house. Uh, oh. <laughs> but I can t- – tell, like, there's um, – at least here in the States, there's a kind of person that would choose to put that in their house. And they're not like the, the typical everyday person that you would see around. You know, yeah. they're a little bit weirder, a little bit more out there kind of people. Um, but I like that. I like the work that draws those people. I think that uh, when Tegan and I are, are sort of like really free to like make the stuff that we just make for us um we get into that area more of when we're making
2: yeah it, well it's interesting from the business side of it because there's a lot um i mean i love instagram and there's a real there's a very strong palette out there at the moment it's very natural and it's beautiful and mm. it's been done really well and um, but i recognized early on in my business that um i, I'm, I wasn't Following any trends, um, I was almost anti-trend, and the I'm not. I don't mind that people. A lot of people don't like my work. No problem at all, because the ones that do like it really like it. And yeah. That's, yeah. And it's because I'm small. Um, I'm not. You know, I don't. I'm never going to mass produce anything. So it doesn't have to appeal to a lot of people. It just has to appeal to the ones who really like it.
1: Yeah, just enough people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, that is actually brings up a question that I had about, um, like, how big is your practice? Is it just you, or do you have people that work for you?
2: No, it's just me. Everything that's woven in the Bristol workshop is me on my loom. But then that obviously doing the figures that wasn't going to stack up. So I then do small batch productions. Um, a couple of years ago, I took one of my most popular Rook designs and had that woven at a workshop in India. Mm. So then I had a, a product at a different price point that was my design, but not woven by me. And it was and that worked really well because a lot of my following liked my work and didn't want to pay the one-off price point. I, I get that. So that works well. And then more recently, I've been working with my local mill and I love that I have a local mill in Bristol, Bristol Weaving Mill, and I designed a blanket. And again, it means that I can do a small batch, you know, not not large volumes, but enough that I've got a supporting product and then I can still do my one-off pieces. And it's, you know, it makes it, you've got to be clear with your branding and your marketing of what what it is and Mm -hmm. i don't want to spread myself too thinly but this seems to be working quite nicely for now i've got a plan (laughs) the next plans already in the pipeline so there will hopefully be other weavers on board but um that's in its very early days so i'm not going to tempt fate by talking about it too much
1: absolutely
2: but yeah so it's it's finding the balance of where you are in your life and where the business is going to be because they're so in they're so intrinsically connected mm. you know what what where my business is and the ages of the children it's a very practical process of laws that I do to work out what I'm doing now and what I'm doing next
1: yeah yeah that's interesting i like the yeah. idea of uh the two price points where you can you can still really do the thing that you love and you can also um design other things that you may not maybe have time or energy to put towards uh, producing, but you still have this sort of drive to design and a market to buy. And you can explore that a little bit more by having somebody else do some of the production for you without Mm -hmm. having to take on that like burden. I mean, I don't know what um, the burden is for a business in the UK hiring an employee, but here in the U S it's like not a cheap thing to hire an employee on top mm-hmm. of what you're actually paying them. Yeah. It, it's,
2: I, I, it's yeah. I'll have to grow a lot to go up to that next level and I've not done the figures yet at all. That's, um, you know, it's not even got that far. So yeah. it's making the money stack up, but because that's it, but it's the labor in this country that is the,
1: the expense. Mm.
2: I think um, and weaving ain't quick.
1: That's right. <laughs> no it is not. I yeah. I think you know that's like the the um the awesome thing about it in that when you sort of get it, you get it and you like get into it and you get meditative about it and it's like this thing that you do and um it like becomes something more than what it like ostensibly is physically um, to you, but in that it also just takes so much time. You know, it's like, it's hard to, um, get to the point where you can do it either fast enough to make it worth it to -hmm. sell or to, um, get your name big enough that you can do it at the pace that is comfortable for you and sell it sell the product for enough to make it worth doing it
2: you have just entirely summed up my last five years work
1: yeah right
2: (laughs) yeah and it's yeah and that's telling that story is as important as the actual weaving as well you know reaching that audience and getting them to understand and be on board and for anybody who's starting out i'll just say hang in there because i'm now can say I am the the proof that it does work it's you know those early days and it's and that's the hardest thing is to keep focused and to keep going and you know I always covered my business costs which I'm really proud of um but I didn't always pay myself Mm. and without um husband covering the mortgage that that wasn't You know you have to know where you're at and you know some people have have got other you know wealthier and other people haven't got a partner and you're just gonna it's just going to take longer you're going to have to work your part-time job or full-time job for longer to get to that point but it works if you keep telling that story and keep making a product you're proud of and that you love other people will start to recognize it too Mm
1: yeah because you really feel um so i i don't know if you uh knew about this but last night we did a round table online with some weavers and we talked about the value of textiles Mm.
0: for uh,
1: like an hour and a half or so and it was interesting we talked about um the uh like monetary value versus like the uh, emotional value and how they're different and a bunch of other stuff But. you know what you were just talking about made me think about the um not only like you're telling that story and then that like really transfers um like in your case you know you can tell i mean even though we're like miles and miles away from each other you know an ocean away uh just talking to you on here you can really tell that the joy that you come at weaving with you can feel that joy and the energy that you put towards your business and weaving in your weavings. Like that translates, you know, so, yeah, you know, however you go at your weavings and your uh, emotion that you put into it, people can feel that as well. So, you know, mm-hmm. you're telling this story, you're presenting your weavings, and people are feeling the story coming from you and from your weavings. So that sort of, um you just you need to get that out there, and people will sort of intrinsically know and feel your authenticity as a weaver, yeah. you know, and they'll find you, and more people will find you, and the more authentic you are, you know, the you know it'll just kind of snowball over time. Absolutely, you're right, and you can't fake it. It's,
2: it's oh well, I'm sure people do, but it becomes very apparent that it's not. Yeah. It's not genuine. And, and that's the bit, I think that's where weaving stands up. You can't be a weaver and not absolutely love it. It's too much of a pain in the arse.
1: Agreed. <laughs> right.
2: um, well, I'm sure it will be the same for every discipline. You know, the people who are the best at, or specialise in it and do it 24-7. You can't. Um, whereas there are some jobs where you could maybe do it and not love it, but do it well. Whereas craft and and textiles, well, or a really slow craft like art, yeah, slow craft like ours, yeah, you have to, you have
1: to live it. So,
2: yeah, people, yeah. you're right. People are buying that passion and mm.
1: authenticity. Yeah, everything you sort as, of embedded into it, yeah, as well as an exquisite woven product. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Not taking anything away from that.
0: <laughs> I wanted to cycle back a little bit and talk about how you price your one of a kind pieces. Because Mm. I know in production, for me, it's like, okay, I can calculate how much weight it's going to take me to do 50 towels, so I do materials and my time and that sort of thing. But when you do a -a one-of-a-kind piece, it's so unique each time, or even in a small batch, they're very unique. So I'm curious Mm. how you go about asking for what you deserve.
2: Yeah, uh, well, I did have
0: to have a fair
2: bit of coaching to get over that. And that's a, a most common mistake that makers make. But I have an ama- amazing lady who everybody should go and read her website and her um, information on there. Patricia Vandenacker, she runs the design trust and she's just such a great coach. Um, and she, whenever she talks to anyone about the business, she starts off with the money. And it's like, how much do you need to earn? and um, goes backwards so um i was underpricing before i did the cross council program and they were another one they absolutely said you if you're underselling you're devaluing everybody you know it's it's not helping so i uh, similar to you i'll i'll take my time in and work out my hourly rate and then uh, put a, a vague but not massive amount in for the design and creativity because the the hourly rate covers most of that. Um, so, my one off rugs that are um, about a metre wide and 180, say, I don't mind talking about money at all. They, they're around um, £1,200, which okay. is probably similar in dollars, there's not a lot of differences <laughs> really these days. They're pretty close
1: these days, yeah.
2: <laughs> um, and the first time I some on a show and somebody asked me, And, uh, you know, saying that figure out loud, because it's a lot of money. It's, I still, it could, I still think it, maybe it should be more, but I'm really happy with that price point. I'm paying myself. I'm covering my business costs. I'm paying myself. And I think that's the price that the customer is also happy to pay. It has to be a bit of that, you know, there's no Mm -hmm. point pricing myself at £5,000 and never selling a thing. Right. (laughs) I would you know, love that one day, but I don't think, what I've also discovered is my customer is very real. I, uh, when you're business modeling, I built up profiles of these customers and I imagine them to be similar to art collectors and not people who are in my circle in life. You know, I'm just, I'm just a typical person. Um, and very quickly I realized that it was very normal people who are yeah, with a good profession, you know, a lot of university lecturers or um, professional people, but with a A certain amount of disposable income. They weren't millionaires. They couldn't, they didn't not look at price tags and it was an investment piece and they knew what they were spending and they were spending carefully. So I do price with my customer in mind as well, as that it is something that normal people want. So I've got to be careful that I don't go for the art market and price myself out. Mm. Um, And it could change, and there will be an art collection someday with silly prices on it. And you know, if I can get that value and that reputation but the moment it's a business and it needs to bring money in and so the way it's working did that answer the question how do i yeah so yeah i do it on a proper sensible way my hourly rate and my materials and how many of them i can make a year and how many people want a year Mm. (laughs) not necessarily always the same
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) um actually i'm curious do you know how many you can make in a year
2: i am um, yeah well no it can again it can stretch and grow i say i'll make 12 a year okay because um that's a, that's a nice realistic amount um and some sometimes it's less that just that gives me enough time to do all the other things in the business mm. as well um but if if there's not if there's not many orders, I might sometimes just divert the attention away to um, teaching for a while. You know, you can usually plan ahead, and um, you know sometimes you've got a little stack of orders, so you kind of find a gap where there isn't any teaching and focus on it. But I've it's know um, it, yeah, I don't the work life balance isn't the word, but it's just making sure that. I don't make myself so busy at the loom that I don't focus on the nuts and bolts of the business as well.
1: Mm. Um, So when you're... um, How much time do you spend teaching usually in a given year of verse weaving?
2: Oh, when is this Well, this year was really looking really good for teaching because I've just got some... I've got some nice four-sharp and I did have quite a full diary. (laughs) And um, it varies. I go into schools and I'll do a couple of three-day workshops. Mm. I'd say I try not to do more than twenty percent of my practice on teaching. It's a good income stream to fall back on. But I didn't ever plan to be a teacher. I know, I know a lot of makers. We teach because it's a really sensible way of, of making sure there's the money coming into the business when you, especially if you're in a, a more art side practice where. A lot of the work is speculative, I can't talk, <laughs> um, or, or to commission. But yeah, I, I, if I say around 20% of my time is on teaching. Cool. Yeah.
1: yeah, that's awesome. Um, so when you are, uh, this is just like a technical question about weaving. Um, mm-hmm. When you're doing your warping, do you like warp? a ton at a time or are you just warping like one or two rugs at a time and you do those and then you put like the next ones on i'm just curious how that sort of process goes for you
2: yeah no that's a really and that's one of the things that's about to change i because i've currently just got the one loom that i use and um, but there is another loom ready to go so i'm going to put a, a massive warp on one of the looms and then keep one of them To be warped, usually just for one or two rugs at a time, because they all vary in size. So there's so much wastage then once you put a big warp on.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. I'm not making it sense. I'm not making much sense. But at the moment, up until now, I've been doing very small warps because you you know, if I've got three orders, I'll do that, and then I don't know what the next pieces will be. I've actually just done one rug where I put a one. Warp on for one rug, and that's very rare I'll do that because it's such an inefficient use of time. But I knew that the next one was a different technique. It's um, going to be warp faced, and the the warp's going to be wool. So I just wanted to finish the one that was in the queue first, and then I'll go back. But I think it's it's, for me, it's going to make more sense to have two looms set up. So one with a standard rug and try and encourage people to order to that size, Mm -hmm. and then the other one for, for more you know, one off things. How many looms do you have? Oh, I've cut it down. I've got two that are still in bits that I haven't built up. There's two in the space. Um, but I one of the next things that's in its early days, I might be about to go large and get another three. <laughs> <I like laughs> that it. That's that's when I go, that's when I bring other people on board. Um but yeah i think i'm gonna have to move spaces then and i love where i am at the moment i'm in an artist studio space with 150 fine artists and it's it's just got such a special vibe and it's incredibly cost effective
1: yes.
2: so i'm not in any hurry to go but if i get all the extra looms out i'll need a bigger space
1: mm. yeah yeah that's interesting um yeah we have a bit of a problem with looms
0: just, just a scotch. We have, we have thirty looms. <laughs>
1: we're just. I don't. You know what happened was we started getting looms because we would find a little deal here or a little deal mm-hmm. there, and we needed a couple different ones because we had like different kinds of projects we were doing, and then people heard and found out that we like collected looms, and then people would come up to us and be like. Hey, I've got this awesome loom, and here's a deal for you. And then we'd be uh, like, "Well, we can't pass this up." I know, I know. And I know now, uh, mostly there's a couple. We have a couple at friends' houses who are like leasing them from us um, yeah. for free, basically, and <laughs> storing th- them. Storing them, yeah. You know. <laughs> um, and we've got a couple like stored downstairs in the in closets, and only one that is like one that we use that's not not like ready to go but we
2: What are they? Are they table looms or are they floor looms?
1: Oh, uh, uh, well that's the problem. They're mostly floor looms. Oh my god. Well, so
0: <laughs> we have we have a variety of looms. Like we have tabletop, rigid heddle, tapestry looms, and then I so when I first learned to weave, I learned to weave on a table loom. And I was not a fan, but as soon as I got to the floor loom, I was hooked and I loved it. And so that turned into a lifelong obsession of needing a cool floor loom. And it's like, oh, well, I need to do 60, 60 inch wide blankets. So I need a 60 inch wide loom. So I got two of them. And, (laughs) you know, just in case, just in case,
2: (laughs) Oh, I love well, it. That's what happened there, isn't it? And I did, I got, I'd had a cull a few years ago and I got rid of two, but I've, not, I've just realized I've not included my sampling looms. So I've got two or three table looms that are still at, knocking around the house because I brought them home at the start of lockdown. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And there's, there's all sorts, there's inkle looms as well. I've got a bag full of inkle looms um, yep. that I've done with workshops. And then Loads of lots of kits for backstrap looms. There must be about forty of them in a box somewhere. And it's,
1: yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> see, yeah, yeah, yep, it happens, a doesn't problem, it? Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Balloon collectors. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, you know, you gotta have someone to use the yarn up with.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I to see them all. That's amazing, though.
1: A loom for every hundred pounds of yarn. <laughs>
0: <laughs> guilty there's worse guilty pleasures to have
1: yes there is
0: so what looms do you work on so the the one my Glamacra
2: floor loom is my right hand man and there's a nice story behind that because i um when I've when I won the award at New Designers, I won some money and I bought myself just a, a Harris folding loom because I was still living with my parents and I didn't want to take the mic. And then I had a table loom that I toured when I was on shows. And then I bought a house and I suddenly had my own house and a and room. And um, so I rang the technician at my college and said, "What was what loom were we working on?" I couldn't remember it few years have passed and she said i cannot believe you phoned me today we've just been given funding to replace all our looms so we're getting rid of the ones that you used and so for an amazing price she said if you can get up here you can you can have one so i bought i bought the loom i learned on which just feels so so serendipitous so that's so Uh, cool yeah I know. so it's still got paint on it from becky who used to weave next to me <laughs> she, we've swapped around but she'd done she was dying a war once and there's still little faint hints of blue on the indigo on the pedals but yes yeah, it's, it's felt quite That's nice awesome. um and then what else the others um the ones in bits again it's just stuff inherited. somebody's had it in their garage and they don't know what to do or when somebody passes away, they just need to get shut and they don't realize that it's treasure. Mm. It's not, it's not a heap of
1: junk in someone's garage. That's how we find ours too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, and I really like that because I feel like at least we're, even if we're not using it right away, someday we'll use them to teach classes on or we'll use them for something. Even if they come here and get folded up and stored for a while, they're not being tossed or thrown away or something like that. They're just like rotting in a shed.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my word, yeah. thought of them going to landfill. Yeah. um, No, you're doing a good thing. Keep going. Uh,
1: (laughs) How much more room have you got? (laughs) Well, we could fit a few more. Um, Okay, so now uh, something I always like to ask about is – How do you? Well, I guess this is a good question. Um, I'm going to change a little bit. How, when you were really getting going, uh, you decided to really start up uh, the business. How did you start selling? And then how has that kind of changed as you've gotten bigger and grown and become more known? Um, Like, did you, or do you go to like craft shows or trade shows, or do you just sell direct to? Customers or um, interior designers, or sort of, what's your modes of selling? That's a good
2: question. That's a, yeah, especially for other weavers. So I started off with contemporary craft shows, and we're so lucky. There, are, I think every country there is a really good scene, and it it just feel like you're on a tour. It's the same faces pop up at different part, points mm-hmm. of the country. And um, but what I did with those because it was the way things are, it was very rare that somebody's going to come along and part with twelve hundred pounds on the day, having seen something for the first time. So I use every selling event to to um, harness email addresses, and um, that sounds really crude and horrible and hard, but it's not. It's just the start of building those relationships. If somebody's been happy to chat with me for twenty minutes, then they're either having a lovely day out and enjoy chatting. Or they're a bit interested, and if they're a bit interested, they're not going to remember me in a week. They're not going to remember who my name is, who my, what my name is. So it's my job to make sure that I give them a little nudge and remind them. And so that that email marketing list is um, is gold dust. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it does. It sounds cold and hot, and it's not. It's it's you're. These are people who are interested, and so it only makes sense that you do. Keep them informed of what you're making and so i still do the shows i've done trade shows as well um, and i sell through galleries um, there's contemporary uh, applied arts in london that's a shop gallery and um, devon guild um, is a very established gallery in the southwest um but everything i do and using my social media as well i try and just gently push people onto this mailing list and then when i've got a new product or if i'm doing a 10 percent off tell them and more often than not then a conversation from four years ago is somebody who's having a 50th birthday and um they are retiring and the colleagues have said what would you like and so it's like oh that thing that i'm never allowed to buy myself i can get it So,
1: yeah, mailing list, hooray for the internet. Yes, I
2: agree 100%. I could have said that much more concisely.
1: (laughs) Well, it's interesting. I mean, the hardest part is uh, sort of figuring out how to get those people on the mailing list. You know, the um, mailing list has got to be, if not the, very close to the number one converting uh, marketing thing that you can do. And it's about getting. It's about actually finding the people to get onto the mailing list, and that is no easy task, especially when you're getting going. Yeah,
2: and I hate mailing. I hate being marketed to. So right, I, I'm always quite respectful that not everybody wants that. But at the same time, I also know that sometimes I, I I'm got quite a weakness for ceramic ju- drugs i really like them and i'll see one and i won't buy it at the time for whatever reason you know it's just not allowed to buy something that day and then i can't remember the name and you know it's like that's the thing nobody's rude nobody meant to forget you mm. but we can't hold into that information so um but yeah there's a well there's a way of doing that i think there's incentives you can use to get people to sign up and um, i'm sure with your wealth of knowledge and <laughs> you can get, you could create a, a um pdf about how to use textiles in your home or something and it's like sign so up to our mailing list and you get this resource that we created
1: it's an yeah story. and usually at shows what we do is um if we are demoing at that show we'll say like what we're weaving here at the show sign up and we're going to give how like whatever we make away. So there may be, like, two scarves or something, and we'll give two scarves away. Um, And not only when we demo at shows do we make more sales because people are, like, you know, they look at the scarf and, like, how sort of time-consuming and complicated it is to, like, run this machine. But then they kind of look around and see, like, how big the blankets are, and they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, you did that to make this? And then they, like, have that much more respect for whatever... The thing they're looking at is. And um, we make more sales that way, but we also get more signups that way, I think. Yeah. You know, people are like, oh, wow, this is like really cool. And I understand what's going on. And also, I like want that scarf because it's really cool. You know, and I saw it being made. Uh, And that has worked out really well for us.
0: I'm curious do you find at your shows that you have to do a lot of educating for people to let them know what? you have and what you do yes and i love it and i could be, i i had
2: somebody that had an open house and somebody came back twice and must have chatted to me for almost an hour over two days and then still thought i was knitting <laughs> <laughs> which i loved and i think we forget how little other people know and it's very hard to not know what you know isn't it Mm. yeah um and yeah he uh chatted about color and looms and and not and all of it was so alien that he saw wool and assumed it was knitted and it's yeah but um I, i love it and i love the surprise um and i also fascinated when people really aren't interested but I've got nothing else to do and then we'll stop and have a chat and then they're completely into it after 10 minutes so it's mm-hmm. like wow well, you know I didn't think I'd like this but this is quite intriguing but my colours also really draw people in I like yeah. um, parrots and parakeets and it's sort of a good way to get people to come and chat to you and yeah. I smile people like yeah. you know it shows I've I've got you know see makers and they've not had a great show, but it's there all over their face, and it's like, whoa, come on, cry yeah. on the way home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one to see it at the
1: show. I'm quite brutal. On time. Well, you know, or you see a lot of this. Mm-hmm. You also see a lot of like. Oh, you see a lot. Like you usually
2: see me doing this on uh, right. on our phones now.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think you know, like being halfway engaged and greeting somebody when they come in even if they don't want to talk to you at least letting them know that you you're like you're here and you're here to like chat and talk and you know be social and whatever they need and i think that goes a long way don't you yeah yeah absolutely um cuz we've had shows where people you know everybody's like like all the people other vendors are miserable cuz they're having terrible shows and we're just sitting there like i don't i don't get it i don't know why and People are coming in and chatting with us for like half an hour at a time and buying something and leaving. And I think a lot of it is kind of your attitude. And I mean, obviously, the people who come have to like have some interest in weaving, right? Or like need something that you have. Um, so we're lucky in that regard, I think. But also, uh, they wouldn't be stopping and talking to us if we were also just like staring at our phone the whole time with like a sour puss on
2: yeah absolutely and it's interesting you have made that point then they they need an interesting weaving that's you know there's that other element of how the world works is that they might have no interest and no desire ever to buy your product their auntie might just say you you know a relative or friend it's like um oh I've, i'm i'm looking for something like this it's like oh my god i met this couple at this show and I, i've got their card somewhere, or you know mm-hmm then um, you, you never know who's gonna it's what they say about you when you're not in the room apparently which makes me quite nervous but <laughs> it's also if you make yourself memorable if you are that, that interesting place to be then people will mm. say to other people talk about you to other people
1: yeah, yeah for sure
0: i went to school for textile design and i was very one of five majors in my class And it was a very small program. Not a lot of people were interested. And I was always curious about UK textile education because it seems so much more in depth. There's so much more supporting it. And I just wanted to hear a little bit more about how you see your education, how it influenced you and maybe the differences, like what's different with how because I had to learn all the textile stuff, so I learned dyeing and stitching and weaving,
1: surface design,
0: surface design. Uh, so like
1: shibori and uh, batik and
0: yeah. So I kind of yeah. had a, a liberal textile education instead of really being having the ability to focus on just like rug weaving or weaving for wearables kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think the co- the course I did was called a design craft craft course, and you did really have to put your eggs in one basket quickly because I was torn between tapestry and weave, and uh, the tapestry tutor was Joe Barker, who was I I don't know. Do you know her work? Yeah. Oh my god, I adore that girl, and and it was it was a tough decision. But lots more people were going for the tapestry and less were going for the rug weaving. And and somebody advised me, you know, you're going to get a more tutor student, really, a better student, tutor student relationship if you do the rugs. And I I was torn, so either one would have, I'm sure, been fine. And I'm really glad with the one I picked. Um, But around uh, the rest of the UK at that time, and it's a long time ago, Nottingham had a very strong um, textiles. Manchester Uni still has very strong, and they really do. Uh, specialize, but then you can also reach out within the courses, I think, and try other disciplines. but I think it, I think it's just a sometimes it's worth um just what what is it you most want to do and and it'll be, it'll depend on the individual. I think some yeah. people thrive more if they've got a few disciplines under their belt and um, I was down at Falmouth College um last year and that wee studio there oh my god the resources were amazing i just wanted to go back to college again <laughs> um, but i think because i was on a business course it really encouraged you to just do one thing well um which was obviously the rug weaving and uh but the uk is struggling at the moment um to have with courses there aren't many and the numbers have dwindled and it's start, it starts in schools um arts is been slowly taken out of the curriculum, mm. and it's heartbreaking and incredibly short-sighted. Um, considering that I'm in a country that celebrates its creativity, I'm not sure who made the decision at the top of the <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to che- make these changes. And I, I hope it's getting to the point now where people are realising that's a really bad move. And um, but. That's why I do a lot of teaching in primary schools because the teachers are, are under so much pressure to do the um, academic stuff that there's not there's just not enough um, art stuff coming through, which mm. particularly. Yeah, it's like and it, um, Rosie um, Greenlees from the Crafts Council she makes this point that if you're a surgeon operating and you've you've not done sewing as a child or you know learnt those dexterous skills, you know how are you going to put Parts of bodies back together. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a craft maker if you enjoy pottery or or sewing or weaving as a child, but it's just those, you know, those skills, those motor skills you learn through craft.
1: Mm. Yeah, real hand hand eye coordination. coordination. Yeah. Yeah. You get a lot from Lego, but not all of it. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I always see um, like the campaign for a wall. I, mm. We followed that, and I'm always like, man, I wish, like, the government in any way supported anything like that here. <laughs>
2: maybe that's your job. Maybe that's what you should yeah, be doing maybe.
1: now. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. In like, between
2: wh- all your free time there, right. you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's sort of what we're on, like, a sort of campaign for weaving right now. Yeah. You know, we're... Well, that's, um-
2: be the change you want to see right will be part of the change you want to see but you could you don't necessarily have to do it all yourself but you could gently start telling people we need more of this and see who's gonna pick it up and roll with it yeah Yeah,
1: for sure yeah and i think um we're still we're doing like we've got projects in the works for um like a we're gonna make camp blankets with all u.s wool and we're gonna um find the flock and we're going to videotape the clip and we're going to go videotape in the mill where it gets spun. And then we're going to document our, like our process of what it goes through here at the studio. And then we're Mm -hmm. going to sort of all come together and release it. Um, like the, uh, shepherd, the mill, and us, and we're going to try to like, promote it, like, uh, weaving, spinning, like we can do all this here. We just need to want to do it all here yeah absolutely that's
2: a great story
1: (laughs) yeah so i think we're gonna we've got some things like that that we're trying to like figure out and work through and i think that this is kind of us trying to figure out some of the like most basic problems with doing that like how do we put something like this together so that we can put something bigger like that together Absolutely.
2: but there's so many uh, you know positives in that and the whole sustainability I mean one of the messages that I use a lot with the high-end pieces mm. is buy this rug and have it for life and don't redecorate every two years and don't tip all your stuff down in the landfill you know value pay a bit more buy something that's going to last you a long time and hopefully be an heirloom and and just stop throwing stuff away and wrecking the planet and you yeah know, with your story there of, of, of telling the story of where it's come from and helping people to just appreciate and value you know how precious the things we buy are and, mm. you know we want people to we need an economy well unless we're going to go for a massive change <laughs> <laughs>
1: right, yeah. but, um,
2: I think you know it's you know you need people to buy but if they just buy more carefully and cleverly
1: yeah and i think too for uh, weavers that there's few enough few enough of us around that we can all survive Mm -hmm. so you know us promoting other weavers is not in any way taking anything away from us because somebody who buys your rugs they're not probably going to even be interested in the rugs that i make or they may be and it may be for a different area of their house but they may want like the hand towels that Tegan makes, or they may be interested in the kind of dye work that somebody else does. So they may buy from multiple weavers, but we're not like, uh, there's enough people out there in the world that we're never going to run out of market for as few of us as there is.
2: No, I I had this chat with myself just before I was at press go on the blankets or while that was still in the idea stage, because a lot of um, weavers have a blanket in their collection and I thought I've always tried to be original and fresh and and I was like oh well everyone else does blankets do I really want to do blankets and then it's like well mine are nothing like theirs Mm. and also it, it works um but yeah it's um it's making sure that you're not treading on other people's toes but at the same time it's not that hard not to because we have all got there's so many ideas. None of us can make everything in our heads in our lifetime. There's no way. So the chances, there's really no need to make something that anybody else is doing.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. I really love uh, your rugs that you do. Um, and every... to me, it's inspiring. I Every time I see them, I send them to her. <laughs> every and... time.
0: And I'm like, you send me the same work. I love it. Yeah, specifically those (laughs) of yours.
1: Um, And I'm curious, like, um, I am drawn to that. And I've, uh, I mean, my stuff, you don't need to see what I've done. Um, But I've, I've like uh, warped up looms and just played with like the different treadling orders and like what I can get with it and done like samples and things. And, I'm just curious. I'm so drawn to the idea that it's uh, like the restrictiveness of it and then how sort of that frees the uh, the weaver up to either play with color in that restrictiveness or pushes you to think about um, like your treadling and how to use that to make designs. And I'm curious, how do you sort of explore that uh in your weaving like either using the color or the treadling to explore the um the sort of restrictiveness of it mm, yeah I, well i could have tied this in a question from tegan earlier as well about
2: the process and things but with um which is the technique that i've chosen to specialize in i have to say i'm not a typical weaver i don't like planning i can't- Oh, that's not fair. I don't like planning, or I just prefer not to have to plan, given the choice. So, a lot of the Rook techniques, because they're weft-based, you don't you, the the, um, the warp is just a skeleton; it's never seen, and it's like as you just pointed out, there's restrictions with what you can do, but then there's a hell of a lot of room for movement.
1: Mm.
2: And so, for those years when I was working in theatre and didn't weave for a marketplace, I was I was literally playing. And that's why that was the freedom I got with Kruplad. As so long as and the treadling, that's just part of what you have to do to the thing that I most want to do. But because I've, I've been working in that technique for so long, I don't think about it. There's no, there's an, I don't have to think about, any, about what's what to press or, or where to put the shuttles. Um, all I have to think about is which colour and which pattern. Does that matter? Even though that sounds like a contradiction, they, it's so much of it happens effortlessly that mm-hmm. I can just go with whatever I want to do with the, with the colors and stuff. And what I sometimes, because it is repetitive and um, sometimes I'll put in a color that's definitely not going to work in my head. And like a lot of my color is instinctive, but I'll put something in that doesn't work and it hideously and then spend the next section making it right. And that is a quite a nice, fun play way for me to bring in a, new, a whole new colourway. Um, but yeah, the, um not sure I've quite explained it, but the actual lifts and what my feet are doing, that doesn't really come into it. It's just literally what's on the shuttle and where it's going next. And croup um, brad is just a joy for that.
1: And then yes. I go and do
2: something else, and then when I go back to do it, the next croup bread one, I do feel like I'm at home. That's my most at home place to be. Mm. I've just, I've, I've put on an Instagram post today, I've just woven the, a rug that I'm really pleased with. It. You know, when some, there's always some glitches, and this one hasn't had any little bits go weird on it. Yes. <laughs> I to deal with it. But it was just a joy. And I think that's a lot to do with the response to this year. So we've all been carrying tension so every day I got in the studio and the schools hadn't had to close and and no one in our circle was testing positive. It was a day to be thankful. It's this weird positive spin we've got at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. And because we just don't quite know what's happening next. So, Not a very long answer. <laughs>
1: that's okay. No, I think that's interesting. Well, I mean, I think that that sort of... Um you know, demonstrates like a true mastery of the technique, right? Because you're not really thinking so much about what your body's doing. You're really focusing on the color and the design of what you're doing. So you are sort of like your body's on autopilot and your mind is free to wander towards the color and then, you know, off to whatever else you're thinking about.
2: And I think um, that's something that's, just certain people can put up with that There's a lot of weavers i know who, who can't stand the way i work and just think it would do their head in um and it's funny isn't it and it doesn't it gives me so much pleasure and mm. and that works you know and it's all each to their own yeah
1: it's- yeah i've um i've been thinking about it for a long time and really i mean the reason i haven't done it is the just initial investment but um the I've been thinking about I've got a uh a VARPA. Varpa poo. Yeah that I can't say it. Can't roll my Rs. <laughs> um and uh I've been thinking about making it a um uh conti- uh c- yeah
0: a continuous, continuous warp continuous
1: warp so that basically I just buy all the cones and put them on like a spool rack and then run it around the back beam and up and over so that I can do um, like I could do like a five foot wide and I could do a two foot wide and I could do a three foot wide and I could do a five foot wide again so that I could just sort of do whatever came to me at yeah. uh, at like the next time or whatever somebody wanted to order or stuff like that. And I wouldn't have to re warp every time. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's held me back is trying to figure out what, how to warp it. And I, I that I'm still lost on whether I want to, because i do it right now it's warped as if um i could put a uh i could put a shaft switching device on it and i could Mm -hmm. do shaft switching and i'm like i'm not sure if i want to do it that way i think i'll probably end up doing it that way because um it just frees up so many opportunities Yeah, and yeah i think I'll, i'll probably end up there but i'm gonna it's gonna be a long windy road i think
2: yeah oh when, well that's the thing and you you'll there's some things that you just feel more at home with i mm. think once you do the shaft switching you may never ever move beyond there that, because that's just oh that's on my list it's i think there's just so much so much mileage in that
1: yes I, I, <laughs> yeah i was uh i was scheduled a couple or er, last year last year to take a class with jason collingwood and oh yeah locally And uh, just all this nonsense happened, and he wasn't allowed to come into the country uh, because our wonderful president uh, changed the rules around the forms that he had to fill out. And um, so that got canceled. But in lieu of that, uh, Harrisville, where he was coming to teach, they make uh, Peter's um, design for his shaft switching rugs or his shaft switching loom. So I got to go. They let me come. For a full day and weave in their shop on their display loom and i was like i fell in love
2: yeah I and
1: so now like the ultimate goal is to get that loom someday tegan's got three of her dream looms so that's now my dream loom
2: oh do it do it no i i um, i did a residency um with jason in colchester just when i was restarting the business because i hadn't made a rook for quite a while I've been working on a smaller scale and I just need, I if I'm going into business I need to feel really confident so I, I signed up for this week um, which is really it was really useful and especially to be in that workshop I had a bit of workshop envy there, Got so much history in it, but yeah I, think I, didn't, I didn't need a week, it was good to be there to um, just remind myself well, watching. but I'm glad you got to go on the um, on that
1: loom. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like I've always enjoyed weaving, and I've pretty much mostly done rugs. Yeah. Since I, I started. bet you could
2: get one secondhand from somewhere.
1: I bet somebody. Yeah. Else it's so hard. One. You can buy Harrisville's all over the place, like their little floor looms, but the their shaft switching looms, you cannot find anywhere. Because mm-hmm.
0: when people buy them, they love them, and they will hold on to them. Until the day they die. Yeah,
1: literally. Yeah, and then their kids will hold on to them.
0: Yeah,
1: it's like the only loom that like kids know the value of for some reason. It's That
2: that is really good to hear. Yeah, Yeah, that gives me hope for the future of rug weaving.
1: Right. I know. Well, someday I'm gonna have a a proper Harrisville shaft switching loom. Uh, A mistake that you made and what you've learned from it.
2: Oh yeah, that's a good one. Oh. Okay. Oh gosh, I could, be seven quite. I like to make light of important questions, but I won't this time. I think um, I, I don't look after the people enough. I'm terrible. I'm very much in the moment and with the person who's right there. But I've really got to, and it's something I, I do occasionally have coaching in the business, and I always identify that I've got to look after those relationships. So, a very sensible answer. Because I really, absolutely, I want to be in touch with you guys and I know that I'm going to be rubbish. And I'm like, it's like, I want you to let me know when you get this shaft switching loom, Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to remember to email you in a couple of weeks so just check in. And I only because life's just busy, but I don't think that's an excuse. I think it's really important to look after the people. So that was... Um, but let's think of this as a funny technical weaving one. Um, I did once make a really a rug that I was not happy with. I took a chance and just made this enormous rug. Um, and it wasn't until I got off the loom that I, it actually made me feel a bit ill. Oh! <laughs> and I very bravely just went out and sold it and somebody fell in love with it. And you know, awesome. now anyone who's bought a rug from me are thinking, oh my God, which one have I bought? The one Is this the one?
1: one? <laughs> <laughs> That's but okay. Awesome.
2: Yeah, I, I love to be daring and I love to try things, but um, one time it in my opinion, it didn't work so well.
1: <laughs> Have you ever had to cut a uh, warp off the loom?
2: No. No, I usually, oh, I've done some very random fixes. I, I um, the warp was too short once, and I literally retied at the other end, just tied the length, and it took me so long, but I couldn't lose the piece. So I did this really awful botched to make sure i could just get another few inches on the weaving done but no i have occasionally i've started again completely and retied if it is just not working i don't you know if i've tied up and thought it'll be all right and then a couple of centimeters in you're like nah it's not it's not going to be all right mm-hmm. <laughs> stop now um, and and you learn from that and you know i, I will spend a, a good hour tying on to make sure it's exactly right before starting because the hour is going to save you half a day at some point,
1: so. Right, yeah. exactly, yeah. We had a um, an incident where we tied up. It was all perfectly tensioned. It was great. And then um, you, sat, you put, like, how many picks? Maybe 10? And then went to advance just a little bit to, like, tighten up the warp. And um, just about maybe, like, that much of the edge of the front apron ripped. And she was like, oh, that's not. weird. And she came and got me, and she came down to ask me if, if I knew what was going on with it. And I was like, well, the other edge is ripped, so it's probably fine. And then she asked me about the tension, and I said, it's okay. You could probably get it a little tighter. And I clicked it one more, and the whole rest of the apron ripped all the way across. And she was just like, oh. And so... We just
2: in the room, <laughs> yeah. It uh,
1: I felt so bad, but I mean, it was gonna happen,
2: it was gonna happen, yeah.
1: yeah. It was, I just feel good knowing that it wasn't necessarily me, <laughs> <laughs> it was just that apron's time. So, whoa, whoa. we just fixed it with uh, Texlov, with Texlov, like their you know, good cable, and you know, just hooked it up and retentioned, and it was good to go, and yeah,
2: and and that, yeah. look at you you're laughing now I'm sure you weren't at the time (laughs) but it all goes to make a
1: it's all part of the journey (laughs) that's right yeah a good story later
0: so my question is what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received it could be life it could be weaving just something that you hold on to that really impacts you that is the best question to finish on can I have two though and yeah. I'll be quick my darling I think
2: I mentioned it early on, the darling art teacher who said, Don't do a job you don't love and i i i can i remember the other day when I was thinking about it, and it's like, find a job you love, and you'll never w- work a day in your life, and I do work hard and I do get fed up sometimes, but on the whole, I'm very aware that I've got my dream job, and I don't know how not many people can say that, so yeah, find a job you love, but then um When I, for business, will it make the boat go faster? And that was from Steve Redgrave, uh, the Olympic rower. And they they were building their team and they started off and they were like, we want the Olympic gold. So with this 18 month training plan, every decision they made for that 18 months is will it make the boat go faster? So your friend phones you on a Wednesday night, you're coming out for a pint. Will it make the boat go faster? No, it won't because I've got training on Thursday morning. And every decision when you're in your business is, is it helping? So, you know, for me, it's like I want, I've just seen a a load of wool. Do I buy it? No, I don't need it now. It's not going to make the boat go faster. It's going to take some, divert some money that needs to go somewhere else. And, you know, just that whole, just focus on what the goal is and is it going to get you there? that's
1: a really good thing to finish on yes yeah yeah i like that a lot
0: me too i like it i'm gonna have to put that above my loom right now because i'm about to weave 16 throw blankets for a client and i'm like all right is this what am i doing am i gonna make my life easier now i'm gonna have is it gonna make the boat go faster Mm -hmm. above my loom
2: (laughs) yeah absolutely so next time someone offers you 42 looms
0: are they actually
2: going
1: (laughs) exactly (laughs) or are they just ballast (laughs) slowing us down
2: but it is hard and and sometimes you do need to go out and drink beer with your mates on a wednesday even when you've got a meeting the next day yeah well you know and
1: that's the other thing too is like when we uh when we're thinking about buying looms we're also like thinking about future plans like we're definitely not going to be able to just go buy 10 looms uh, someday when we're ready to start teaching and we have space to do it. So that's kind of where we are right now. We're like, well, we have this opportunity to get this really nice loom that we could teach on and give it a home and it's cheap and affordable. And we're not going to have that opportunity in three years. So that's the kind of, tension that we fight every day.
2: <laughs> yeah, well I think that's it. You've got the goal, you're very clear on the goal. And then sometimes, you know, if you can go directly to the goal, brilliant. But in reality, there are really tempting diversions. And, yes. and sometimes it's worth taking those and especially if the goal is to have a studio with lots of looms and mm. of course you do. But um it's just not getting too distracted by the things that aren't what your main
1: aim is. right yeah for sure yeah i mean we could definitely chill on the yarn purchase see
0: (laughs) (laughs) it has been so amazing to get to meet you and talk to you i mean we've been drooling over your instagram feed for years now so it's been so exciting to get to know about your work and more about you it's been so wonderful
2: I'm completely mutual. I've really enjoyed getting to know
0: you guys. Our first international guest was amazing. Her work is so vibrant. It makes me want to try new color palettes.
1: Yeah, talking to her inspired me to get back to rug weaving.
0: A special thank you again to our patrons. Your support means the world to us.
1: Another thank you goes out to Rawhead the Recluse for providing music for our podcast. Find him at rawheadtherecluse.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe now. It will help us reach more weavers and people who are passionate about hand-created textiles.
0: You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Professional Weaver Society. And you can get full show notes at proweaverpod.com.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Professional Weaver Podcast. We look forward to sharing more episodes with you each Friday. Bye! Bye.